All right, all right. Well, good morning. So good to be with y'all today. It's been like six Sundays since I have done a sermon. So you would think that the taste, oh, yeah, I'm all ready to go. Nope, I'm, I'll shake off some rust. So thanks for being uh, second service and, and uh, nobody laughed. Okay, here we go. Um, uh, hey, uh, there's a guy named Tony Campolo. Anybody heard of Tony Campolo before? Uh, there's a book he wrote, gosh, it's been a long time now, but it's called The Kingdom of God is a Party. It's a great book, I highly recommend it. But in this book, he tells a story of a time where he was, he was called to, he had to go speak in like Honolulu, Hawaii, right? I guess, sounds like a tough gig, right? Somebody's got to love Jesus enough to do that job. But, um, but he flew from New York to Honolulu because all the time changes. He found himself 3.30 in the morning, wide awake. He's ready for breakfast. So he goes downstairs in the hotel. It's closed. Nothing's happening. He goes out on the street right by the hotel. There's nothing open. So he wanders around, and then he finds a 24-hour greasy spoon kind of diner, and he orders breakfast. I'll pick up the story here with his words. He says, now as I sat there munching on my donut and sipping coffee at 3.30 in the morning, the door of the diner suddenly swung open, and to my discomfort, in marched eight or nine provocative and boisterous prostitutes. It's kind of a small diner, and they sat down on both sides of me, and there I was, like, trapped. <laughs> Said their talk was loud, it was crude, I felt completely out of place, was just about to try to make my getaway when I overheard the woman beside me say, tomorrow's my birthday, I'm going to be 39. Her friend responded in really a nasty tone. So what do you want from me, Agnes, a birthday party? What do you, you want me to make you a cake and sing you happy birthday? Come on, said the woman that was sitting right next to me. I, I was just telling you, it was, it was my birthday. I don't want anything from you. I mean, why should, why should you give me a birthday party? I've never had a birthday party my entire life. Why would one start now? When I heard this, says Campolo, I made a decision. She will have a birthday party and we will get her a cake. So he waited, and when all of the other prostitutes had left, there he was, alone with the cook of the diner, a guy named Harry, and sprung the idea on Harry. Unbelievably, Harry thought it was a great idea. He even volunteered to make the cake. The next day, someone must have gotten word out on the street, because by 3.15 a.m., every prostitute in Honolulu was in the place. He says... Then at 3.30 on the dot, the door of the diner swung open, and in came Agnes and her friend. He said, I had everybody ready. And when they came in, we all screamed, happy birthday, Agnes. Campolo said, never have I seen a person so flabbergasted, stunned, and shaken. Her mouth fell open. Her legs seemed to buckle. Her friend grabbed her by the arm to steady her, and as she led her over, she sat her down on one of the stools by the counter, and we all started to sing happy birthday to her. When we got to the end of our singing, her eyes were moist, but then when the birthday cake with all the candles on it was carried out, she lost it and began to weep openly. Agnes looked down at the cake, and without taking her eyes off it, she said, 
look, Harry, is, is it all right with you if I, I, I mean, is it okay if I kind of, what I mean to ask, is it okay if we just keep this cake for a little while? I mean, is it okay if we don't eat it right away? Harry shrugged and said, sure, it's okay. If you want to keep the cake, keep the cake. I don't care if you take it home. Can I? She said. She got up off the stool, picked up the cake, and carrying it like it was the holy grail, walked slowly toward the door. And as she left, we all just sat there motionless. When the door closed, there was a stunned silence across the diner. And not knowing what else to say, typical pastor, I broke the silence by saying, well, what do you say we, uh, what do you say we pray? <laughs> Again, I thought that was really funny, but okay. Um, he said, I prayed for Agnes, prayed for her salvation. I prayed that God would be good to her and protect her and bless her life. When I finished, he said, Harry leaned over the counter with a trace of hostility in his voice and said, hey, you never told me you was a preacher. What kind of church you belong to? One of those moments where just the right words came out, I answered, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> Harry said, no, no you don't. There ain't no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. Harry said, I'd, I'd join a church like that. Wouldn't we all, Campolo says, wouldn't we all love to join a church that throws birthday parties like that at 3.30 in the morning? Wouldn't we all love to be a part of a church like that. I read this story to my wife Heidi um, a couple days ago. And as I got to the end and I read that question, wouldn't we all love to be a part of a church like that? My tender-hearted, wise wife said something like, yes. And then after a pause, she said, yes, but not everyone. Not everyone actually wants to be a part of that kind of church. And instantly I knew she's right. Sadly, I think she's right. Uh, not every Christian demonstrates that level of grace towards other people. Maybe you've heard this statement. Um, we judge others who sin differently than we do. Have you found that to be true? And maybe that's the first time you've seen that statement, but... Um, we, and let me say especially I'd say we Christians kind of have a reputation for this. We tend to judge others more harshly who sin differently or struggle differently than, than we do. Like if we've been Christians for a while, we, we might know that God gives us grace. We hear that, oh, I can define grace. I know the definition of grace. Grace is Unmerited favor, right? Um, grace is favor from God that we did nothing to earn. Uh, we might say grace. Grace is the gift God gave us in Jesus. We didn't deserve Jesus. God gave us Jesus. That's grace. And, and all of that would be true. Um, but I think that the longer we, and I include me in this as well, the longer we who've been Christians, um, the more I think we have to be uh, aware of and pay attention to making sure that we're not just people who know the words to define what grace means theologically, 
the longer we've been Christians, we, I think we have to remember to make sure that we are the people who give that grace away to others, especially, especially to those who sin or struggle in ways that are different than we do or ways that we don't understand. I mean, I was thinking about, you know, a lot of us, we love to sing about amazing grace, um, I love to sing about amazing grace, but what about outrageous grace? What about grace that looks kind of reckless? What about love from God that looks a little kind of out there? Because um, the truth is, you don't have to be a researcher, although the researchers have done the research, to know that, that most people that are outside of church groups wouldn't necessarily use the word outrageous grace to describe what they see of the church. Um, that's sadly actually been true for a long time of, of religious people down through the ages. And in the story that we're looking at today in Luke chapter 7, Jesus is going to make it abundantly clear that we have to get grace to give grace. Like we have to get it. We have to receive it in order to give it. We have to get grace to give grace. See, if we're someone that hasn't gotten grace or forgets about grace, or we've been a long time since we've remembered how desperately we've needed amazing grace, if we're blind to our need for grace, we can find ourselves unable to even imagine God's grace for other people. Um, we might find ourselves, the longer we've kind of been away from the idea of how desperately we need grace, we might be offended when somebody that we've judged is shown grace by others. We might even be outraged when we see God's grace in action. So turn to Luke 7. We're going to start reading verse 36. You can follow along on the screen. Luke 30, uh, 7 verse 36. And we're continuing our study here in the book of Luke. And we're calling our, our series Luke, Jesus for Everyone. And in this story right here, we're about to see Jesus push the envelope in ways that outrageously emphasize that when he emphasizes that he is for everyone, he means yes, everyone. I'll read through the passage here, kind of a, a chunk of verses, so I'll read through the whole thing and the story, and then we'll go back and kind of pick our way through the story a little slower with some details, but we'll start here. Verse 36 says, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus over for a meal. He went to the Pharisee's house and sat down at the dinner table. Just then, a woman of the village, the town harlot, and some of your Bibles read, a woman who had led a sinful life, and so there's some debate on this. Just pause here for a second. Um, but the Greek term for the word used here is usually used to describe a prostitute, so you could translate it, a woman who was a prostitute or a woman who had lived a sinful life, continuing on, having learned that Jesus was a guest in the house of the Pharisee, came with a bottle of very expensive perfume. He stood, she stood at his feet, weeping, raining tears on his feet. Letting down her hair, she dried his feet, kissed them, and anointed them with the perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus over saw this, he said to himself, this man was the prophet that I thought he was. He would know what kind of woman it is who's falling all over him. So Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Oh, 
tell me, teacher. Like probably Simon's thinking, oh, okay, Jesus, what are you going to do to say, you know, what are you going to say to get yourself out of this one? Tell me, Jesus. And so Jesus says, two men were in debt to a banker. One owed 500 silver pieces. So the Greek there is the 500 denarii. So this is about 200, I'm sorry, this is about two years, two years wages. So he's saying one owed a huge amount, two years wages. One owed another big amount, but it was like, you know, 50, so it's about two months wages. And then the important part, neither of them could pay up. And so the banker canceled both debts. Which of the two would be more grateful? Simon answered, I suppose um, the one who is forgiven the most. That's right, said Jesus. Then turning to the woman, but speaking to Simon, Jesus says, do you see this woman? I came to your home. You provided no water for my feet, but she rained tears on my feet and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss of greeting, but from the time I arrived, she hasn't quit kissing my feet. You provided nothing for freshening up, but she has soothed my feet with perfume. Impressive, isn't it? Therefore, I tell you, Her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. Jesus is saying, in light of all of what she's been forgiven, her love is huge. It's great. She loved much. And then Jesus says, but he, who do you suppose he's talking to? He who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Uh, The point of the parable, again, here, the the one who's been forgiven much loves much. The person who's been forgiven little loves little. And again, I think this connects to that statement where you could say it this way. You have to to get grace to receive grace to give grace. You got to get grace to give it. But if you're somebody who didn't think, well, I I needed that much grace, then you'll have little grace to give away. You'll have very little love to give to others, little love, if any, for other people. And just, I mean, what a story. What a story. And again, what I want to do here now is we've kind of looked at the broader part of the story, but I want to go back and I want to highlight a few things to try to give us a little more depth of understanding of what was actually going on in this story here Uh, of outrageous grace. Now, before the story, you just kind of set the timeline of where this happened. It's kind of early in Jesus' ministry before this invitation to dinner happens. Um, uh, His popularity has been growing, and this dinner that he gets invited to was an opportunity for the religious leaders, um, the men who are known as Pharisees, to find out who this Jesus guy really was. Now, if you're kind of new to this, the the Pharisees um, were kind of the religious men of the day. They were very elite. They they looked very spiritual. They acted very spiritual. They went to great lengths to make sure that everybody knew how spiritual they were. And Simon is one of those guys. He's a Pharisee, um, this dominant religious culture. He's in this position of power and influence. Um, Simon here is kind of the self-appointed judge uh, that really looks around at everybody else and determines their worth. 
Are they worthy or not worthy? And so uh, by inviting Jesus over, he might have wanted to see, hey, is Jesus on our side here with the Pharisees? Um, Maybe he invited Jesus over to like test Jesus. And so they're probably at this dinner that Jesus is showing up to. There are probably other Pharisees. Um, And, you know, if they've heard anything about Jesus, they've heard that some of his methods are a little controversial. And so they already probably, even though it's early in his ministry, have a critical eye towards Jesus. But, you know, they're thinking, hey, Jesus, here's your big chance, right? Jesus, if you want to land your ministry on solid ground, here you go. Here's your big career move. Come in here and impress us. But Jesus doesn't care about those kinds of things. He never has, never will. So he accepts the invitation and he shows up for dinner. But he, right away, would have stepped into just an awkward situation. Right from the moment he gets in the door, it gets weird. See, because in those days, when somebody um, shows up as a dinner guest, the servant of the host house would come and take off the guest's sandals and wash the feet with water, anoint their head with oil, and then if the guest was a respected person like Jesus, a rabbi, then the, uh, as a sign of respect, the master of the house would then give him a kiss of greeting on the cheek and then escort him to the head of the table, the place of honor. But that's not what happens. Instead, Jesus is ignored. He's likely given a seat nearest the door. No kiss on the cheek. Really kind of a social slap in the face. And this was back then. Like today, we're like, whatever, big deal. But back then, this was a big deal. See, even the the foot washing part, um, it's both ceremonial in their religion, but it's also practical. And just the practical part of it was, think about roads that aren't paved, and um, traveling and all that dusty roads. Now think about uh, people and animals sharing the road. Anybody gone hiking on a trail where horses have gone ahead of you? Yeah, Heidi's got her hand up high from this last month. Yeah, it's uh, not always enjoyable, right? But just imagine that just being common. Like not everybody's cleaning up after the horse, after the donkey, after the whatever's going down. And so these are pretty filthy roads, dusty roads. So it's also very practical when somebody shows up. Um, So when you came to someone's house, again, it was common to do at least those three things. Water um, for washing, uh, oil was something used to kind of refresh themselves after all the dust. And then there was this kiss of greeting as a thing of honor. Um, Has anybody ever been to a culture where they do the kiss of greeting kind of as a honor thing? Yeah, there's a couple of us in the room. Um, I think I've told this story here before, but here I go again. So... um, when I was in college, our band was in, it was still the Soviet Union. It was one year before it, you know, all, all came apart. But we were told in this church we visited that they still, some of the older believers still did the kiss of greeting, right? And it's usually on the cheek, right? And so they wanted us to be prepared, you know, don't freak out. You know, I'm in college and I'm like, man, I hope there's some, some good uh, Russian girls that give a kiss of greeting is what I was hoping, right? <laughs> Okay, there we go. Honesty. Thank you for laughing, Brittany. I appreciate you. Um, Anyway, so that's not who uh, I saw coming down the middle aisle after we were done. And I spotted him and I knew right away, oh, this older guy is going to give me the kiss of greeting. Um, Kind of a big dude, had a giant kind of Grizzly Adams sort of beard. And uh, I thought, well, here we go. Brace yourself for this. And um, and he didn't give me uh, the kiss of greeting cheek and cheek. He went straight for the lips. So 
Um, let me just tell you, I, for one, am glad that we don't do that greet one another with a holy kiss thing anymore. Anyone with me? Anybody with me on that? Okay, some of us are okay with that. But in that culture, it was a sign of respect. Um, but he didn't, the, Simon did not come and greet Jesus that way. No kiss, no water for the feet, no oil for his face. And in that culture, to everyone there, they would have known that this demonstrated outrageous rudeness by Simon as the host. And then, and then, into this very proper, very respected, very religious Pharisee's house, the dinner is crashed by what the text says is a sinful woman. Again, many scholars um, uh, assume or believe, yet they speaking, that she was probably a prostitute. Now, back in that day and age, prostitutes, especially in the Jewish culture, they were seen as really scum of the earth by Pharisees and religious people. But I want to point something out. Um, this is true today as well, but especially back then, uh, this was not a job that a woman chose as a career path. See, back in that male-dominated culture, prostitutes were often, often widows, um, or they were orphaned, and there was no family or anyone to care for them, and so with no other options, sometimes desperately, this was the only path uh, open to them, they were forced into this. And, and, and think about this. In Jewish culture, these are the people of God, and God had commanded his people to care for orphans and widows. So if there was a village prostitute in a Jewish village, then, then any of the religious men that were present in this, who, who claimed to take God's commands seriously, this having a prostitute was actually an indictment on these religious men who obviously hadn't done what the law required of them. So, with all that in play, here she is, she's a woman with this sinful reputation. She finds out that Jesus is at... Simon the Pharisee's home, and she goes in, and immediately, I'm guessing that the Pharisees, in their minds, they're like, oh man, like who saw her come in here? What are people going to think? What message will this send to everyone? This is an outrage. This is a scandal. Because religious, you know, superior types worry about that kind of stuff. What will people think? But not Jesus. Not Jesus. And then picture her in the story. She hovers at the feet of Jesus and she begins to weep. And we don't know for sure why, but I even just wonder if the reason that she begins to weep is that maybe she had heard Jesus speak or teach. And maybe that day was the first day that she realized how loved she was. That as imperfect or sinful as she was, she wasn't trash. That she is valuable. That she is loved unconditionally as she is. And with that heart of gratitude, she comes in. And, and she would have recognized right away, too, the disrespect that Simon showed Jesus. The lack of a kiss or water for the feet or oil for his head. And this outrageous rudeness of the host. And so she takes what she has and gives it. She demonstrates in the face of outrageous um, disrespect. She demonstrates outrageous 
adoration. Now, think about this, what she does here, like her behavior, culturally, I mean, we might even be, well, it's kind of overboard and weird, but especially back then, right? It's culturally scandalous, like for to kiss, not kissing him on the cheek like you do for, she was kissing his feet. Um, to, to let her hair down for a woman in that culture to have unbound hair was a big deal. Um, so no doubt when this happens, the Pharisees are seeing this go down and they're like, <clears throat> okay, Jesus, here's your big chance. Make your stand right here so people will know what you think of dirty, imperfect, sinful people. Pronounce judgment. Jesus, pronounce judgment on her and show everyone here that you too, like us, you are righteous, you are holy. She brings an alabaster jar. And it would have been full of perfume, a long-necked bottle. And it would have been full of expensive perfume. Prostitutes, if that's what she was in this day and age, prostitutes were extremely poor. So if that was her background, it's likely that this was her most prized possession. There's actually research that's been done that, that suggests that, that this bottle of expensive perfume may have been her dowry, like her, her, her way out of prostitution one day in that culture, her treasure. And she takes it, her treasure, and pours it out, not on his head like you would, but on his feet. She's making a strong statement here. And Jesus knows what it is. She is staking her hope, her future, everything on Jesus. See, right here, we know that she gets it. She knows how badly she's in need of grace. And she has already tasted of outrageous grace and recognizes that Jesus is her only hope. Put your mind back in the scene here. This all goes down, all the Pharisees standing around, there's Jesus, there's the woman. And by now, when this is all happening, the Pharisees are probably thinking, like, come on, Jesus, this is actually, like, some people are, this looks a little sensual. Do you actually know her? Like, she's clearly grateful for something. We got a lot of questions, Jesus, turning in our heads. You better think fast, and what you say had better be good, because you're not winning points with us. You're not winning points with our people. And in our theology, you're not winning points with God, so kick her out of here now. Do it loudly. But Jesus, he sees her as a woman, not a sinner, not a prostitute. He says, do you see this woman? He calls her a woman, not a sinner. He, he sees her as a person created in the image of God. And he doesn't make excuses. He's not like, hey, guys, it's not what you think. No, 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 no. Simon says Jesus, do you see her? He offers no excuses. He allows her to continue. And when he finally does speak, he tells a parable, just like Jesus would. <laughs> Jesus tells a parable that becomes a riddle. We've already read it, but a creditor forgave two debtors. One of them owed a significant amount, like two months' pay, and another owed even more, like two years of salary, and the creditor forgave both. Is there anyone here that could use a creditor or a banker like that right now? Anyone here? There's a few of us? Okay. That'd be awesome. 
The NIV translates it this way. Jesus asked Simon after the story, now which of them will love him more? And you just kind of look at the tentative nature of Simon's response. He's like, I suppose, he says. Like, I think he's in trouble and he knows he can't really find a way out of this. Because he knows that once he admits the one who has forgiven more, probably loves more, he knows he's lost the argument. He knows that he's being put on the spot. He knows that Jesus is exposing what's actually going on in his heart. But he manages to spit out the answers. I suppose the one who was forgiven the most. And after that, Jesus here just has to state what's already completely obvious. That the woman, she is grateful. Because she knows she's been forgiven much. But Simon is ungrateful, not even able to see his need for forgiveness, his need for grace, really at all. And again, the point of this parable is the one who is forgiven much loves much. The one who is forgiven much loves much. The one who has been forgiven, I'll put quotes around it, little, (laughs) loves little. Again, you gotta, you gotta get grace. You have to receive grace to give grace. You gotta get grace to give grace. But the thing is, if you don't think you actually needed grace or that you didn't really need that much grace, compared to other people anyway, then you'll have very little love, if any, to give to others. You guys, this story, this story here in Luke 7, it's, 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 it's a story of grace and it's a scandal. Like, this kind of grace is outrageous. It's scandalous. I mean, think about what Jesus is doing here when he tells this, this story, actually acts out the episode. You got the, you've got this woman, a sinful woman, maybe a prostitute. You've got this religious guy who's respected. And who's the hero and who's the villain in the story? See, Jesus is asking them And he's asking us to see ourselves in the story. Who are we going to line up and stand next to? Right? Will we? Will we go? Okay. I. You know what? I'm going to identify here. Yeah, with the sinful woman, the prostitute. Like, we're going to go over here and go. You know what? Yeah, I recognize that we all have a debt that we could not pay on our own. We all need the outrageous grace of Jesus. Is that where we'll line up? Or do we have to admit that we're a little more like Simon than we wish we were? This religious elite guy who's kind of better than everybody else, this self-righteous, superior judge, somebody who, in Jesus' words, is loving little. Eh. Somebody who carries around a gavel to pronounce judgment on all the obvious sinners like her. See, if we've lived a moral life, uh, if we followed the rules, um, if we've avoided major sin mostly anyway, that's great. But if we are more like Simon, who then look down on people who sin differently than we do, we might go read this story. We might read this story and go, wait a minute, Jesus, you're asking me to, to identify with a woman like her? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think he'd say, yeah, yep, yeah, exactly. 
And for, for religious people, that can feel outrageous. That can feel scandalous, which is exactly what Jesus is going for here. In fact, if you just look at all the stories of Jesus and you just start wondering, why do the religious leaders hate Jesus so much? It's stories like this. Big reasons why Jesus was so hated because he made the hero out of the story out of the people that would typically be the bad guy, right? The prodigal son turns into the good guy and the religious guy, the judgmental older brother turns into the villain. The good Samaritan, the hero of the story is a hated Samaritan. See, this is what Jesus loved to do most, to extend grace to people, especially the people who knew they didn't deserve it. And it got him into trouble all the time with the religious people because it's a scandal. It's a scandal, but grace truly is scandalous, isn't it? And you have to get grace to give grace. See, according to Jesus, once again, the one, the person who is forgiven much, loves much. And according to Jesus, the person who's forgiven little or thinks they didn't need that much forgiveness to start with, compared to other people at least, that person loves little. That person who thinks they didn't need that much forgiveness, they actually can become outraged when they see grace demonstrated toward those they've judged. But this person who realizes they're forgiven much, they experience outrageous grace. And they tend to be the people that know how to give grace to those around them. Because you have to get grace to give grace. We are out of time, so as a worship team comes, got a couple questions for us. Where do you see yourself lining up? Are you over here more on that kind of identify with the Pharisee? Or maybe you go, I kind of actually identify more with the sinful woman. And so let me talk first about the Pharisee side of things. Like those of us who've maybe even followed Jesus for a while, we tend to kind of be over here on that side of things. And I wonder if God's inviting us in this story to consider our Pharisee tendencies um, that maybe we don't even know are coming out of us, but are coming out of us, right? Like, would we, if we say, gosh, I know I actually can line up over there more than I wish I did, can we say, God, I give you permission to show me when I drift into this Pharisee tendency. Like, God, will you tap me on the shoulder and show me that I'm being harsh or unforgiving or judging I give you permission to do that, right? And so here's the question. If you find yourself gravitating over here toward that, admitting that it's easy to do the Pharisee thing, here's the question. Um, and this is a question, by the way, I'm in it with you, okay? <laughs> Am I willing to lay down the gavel and resign as the judge of the universe and instead learn to love others like Jesus loves them? Am I willing to resign and judge of the universe, judging everybody, especially those that sin differently than I do, and learn to love them like Jesus does. Because friends, actually living that way is the path to freedom. Um, Loving others like Jesus loves them. That's how we start to experience grace in real time. We 
receive it and we give it when we just stand with Jesus and put all that Pharisee stuff behind us and love people like he does. So that's a question for those of us maybe that have been a Christian for a while or we're good religious performers. Here's a question for maybe those of us that find ourselves on that other side of things. Um, Maybe we struggle. Maybe we hide our struggles because we don't think anybody would have grace for us. Maybe you're over here and you're searching for God or wondering about a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you even think, I got to get my stuff together before I can, you know, actually follow Jesus because I can't tell people about this thing over here. If that's you, um, here's a question for you this week. Will I decide to get to know this Jesus, the real Jesus, and just start following him? Not clean up all your stuff and then figure that. No, no. As you are where you are, trust his grace is enough for you. And start to follow Jesus right here. Take that next step, trusting in his grace because you, my friend, are already loved. You are already cared for. And for you to start feeling free in your story, starts just by following Jesus. So no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, um, no matter where you are today, I just want you to hear me. You're never too far. You are never beyond the reach of God's mercy and grace. You are forgiven because of what Jesus has already done for you. So you can step into his forgiveness. You can leave your failures before God today and invite Jesus into every area that has haunted you with regret. Just let go of your past and walk into the newness of life in Christ. It's never too late. God's mercy is never, ever out of reach. I invite you this week to take those questions with you. But now we're going to sing a song that I hope will help us to remember, be reminded, to even start stepping into the deep love and grace of God. Because stepping into his love will help our love for others to grow and our, even our acceptance and love toward God to grow. And some people might even call it reckless to be able to love, that God would love us this way no matter where we're at before we even get our stuff together. But that's the kind of God that we serve. So will you stand as we sing about the love of God? Father, I pray even now as we sing this song, we would experience something from your Holy Spirit that helps us to trust in how deep, how wide, how high, how long your love is for us and that there's nothing you would let stand between us and you. May we experience that now in Jesus' name.